Hi, Nick Vins here. Today on The Chattering Hour, I'm talking with Art the Clown himself, David Howard Thornton. He's slashing it to the top of the charts at the moment in Terrifier 2. We talk about that, getting cast for the role, how he ended up wandering around naked, outside, in the dark, all based on a conversation in a car, all that and much, much more today on The Chattering Hour with David Howard Thornton. And we're back with David Howard Thornton. As I say, he really is storming up the charts in Terrifier 2 as Art the Clown. We talk about that, the first film, his love of comics. Let's get to it. David, thank you very much indeed for joining me here today. Oh, thanks for having me, man. And so I'd like to take you right back to the very beginning, as I always do. So where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Huntsville, Alabama all places you know it's just like rocket city usa oh right 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 and what sort of childhood did you have what was an average day for you as a kid oh gosh i mean i would say typical childhood i guess i mean i you know i was the go outside and play type of kid with all the local you know neighborhood kids and stuff like that i i had the the neighborhood trampoline so Everybody would come to my house because everybody wanted to jump on my trampoline and stuff like that. So I, I was I was kind of the hot spot. I was like the epicenter of everything with the neighborhood kids. So yeah, right, right, right. And what sort of films and TV were you watching? Oh, oh God, everything I, except for horror movies. I wasn't watching horror movies as a kid because my mom was afraid of horror movies. But uh, I, I watched everything. I, I mean, I was especially cartoon junkie. So I was I was watching everything and anything. It, Whatever was on at that time, I was watching, especially like the Disney Afternoon or Ninja Turtles, He-Man, all that kind of stuff. I was huge into all of that. Right, right, right. So when did you did you ever develop a love of horror films before you did Terrifier? I did. And that was like um, started basically my senior high school because that's when Scream 2 came out. And I was doing a production of A Christmas Carol and the cast wanted to go out and see Scream 2. And there was a girl in the cast I had a crush on, and she asked me to go with them. I'm like, well, I can't chicken out, so I might as well go. I went, and I loved it. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to see more of these movies. So I, I, I went, like, that Christmas, I went to my cousin's house, and we watched the original screen. So I could, like, watch that. I'm like, oh, this is what everything was referring to. And then that next year when I went to college, my roommate and I would rent stacks of videotapes from the, the local movie store and try to catch up because he didn't watch horror movies either. He came from a very, uh, like very conservative Southern Baptist family where they just didn't watch that kind of movies. And so that's, we had to catch up with our childhood, you know? And so we would like each weekend would do a different franchise basically. So one weekend would do like the Halloween movies next weekend would do like the Friday 13th next weekend, maybe like the nightmare on Elm street movies. So it was fun. Right, right. And you mentioned you're doing Christmas Carol. So when did you get, when did the acting bug bite you? 
Oh gosh, that was early on. I, I was doing church theater because my, my mom would direct a lot of shows. My dad would be in them. And so I was in the church kids choir and I would do a lot of shows then, but it really started to bite me, I guess my eighth grade year in middle school um, because I was very shy and I was bullied a lot. And my mom wanted to help me break out my shell and, you know, cause she knew how funny I was at home, but at school I was very quiet because I had gone to a new school in sixth grade and no one really knew me. I was easy pickings because I was short kid with the glasses, braces, um, sang soprano in the choir. So, you know, easy, easy target in, in Alabama, especially where everything's geared towards sports. And so she's like, well, you know, your, your classmates need to see your, your, your funny side. So why don't you audition for this production of Mickey's Christmas Carol? You do a great Mickey Mouse impersonation. So why don't you do this? I'm like, yeah, sure. I, yeah, I, I can do that. And so I got cast. And we're doing the show and everything starts to go wrong instead of being like most kids or you know a lot of actors when things go wrong how they just kind of freeze up i just went with it and started making jokes like uh for instance there was a moment where like the cratchit family table broke and it sent this chicken over the audience and i'm like oh wow i guess we have fast food tonight folks <laughs> the stuff like that i just i i did i had everybody just laughing because they knew that wasn't supposed to happen and i'm like ah oh, god i love this feeling i i love making people laugh like this. Um, I'm in control. Uh, people are laughing with me instead of at me. And I love this feeling. I want to keep doing this. And I love making people laugh. That was the big thing. I love making people laugh. And so my mom encouraged me to start doing uh, community theater. So I started auditioning for community theater and it just snowballed from there. Where did you go on to train? I didn't actually train. I have a degree in elementary education because I was trying to be practical with my life. And I, I guess my training was really just from doing it, being on stage with other experienced actors and learning from them and also watching great actors in film and other plays and learning from what they did and adapting and making it my own. Right. So what was your first professional job then? Uh, my first like professional acting job, I would say, oh boy, um, probably I, I did a commercial right upon moving to New York City for uh, something called Voice Asia that was only seen in like Japan and China and like South Korea. And I was kind of like their Verizon guy for a few commercials. So it was, it was, it was that was fun. Um, but you know, I, I started doing like off Broadway shows once I moved here to New York. and. Um, yeah, I, I eventually graduated doing some voiceover work for video games and uh, animated series and also touring with the How the Grinch Stole Christmas the Musical for five years. And then oh, wow. Terrifier came along. Right. So had you done any film before you did Terrifier? Because I noticed it it advertises you as introducing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's true. I, I The only film work I had done before was maybe some extra work. So nothing substantial. So that that was really my first real film role, besides just being in the background as as a you know uh, a person in the crowd. So that I did a lot of learning on set because right. that was a lot different from being on stage. And so I was like, well, this is this is trial by fire. But I had you know great co stars to learn off of the whole entire time, especially Jenna Canal. I mean, she she's a pro. She's done several films already and. She was, you know, helping me learn the lingo and everything. So I, it's, I really appreciated that. So how did you get cast? I just auditioned. 
I just went to, uh, there was an open call audition on Actors Access. They were looking for a tall, skinny actor with a clowning or physical comedy experience to play art. And I knew the character because I had seen All Hallows Eve like a year or so before. And I was like, oh my God, I'm perfect for this. <clears throat> There's a lot I'd like to bring to this role. And I, I think I can do very good with this. And I was like, this would be a great way to finally get my foot in the door in the film world. I, I would love to get some experience with this. So I, I contacted my agents. And I'm like, hey, I, I think this is great for me. Please submit me. And the rest is history. So what was the actual audition itself like? It was different. It was, um, I, I, God, I thought I had messed up going into it because I walk in the room and everybody has scripts and I never was given a script and I, I started to panic and they called me into the room to audition and I'm like, I'm so sorry, I don't have a script. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. You don't need it. Art never talks. I'm like, I, okay, cool. So what do I do then? What do you, what do you want me to do? I, Damien, um, the director, he, he's like, just uh, come up with a scene where you decapitate a guy and you're happy about doing it. And that's all I was given. And I had to do it right there on the fly. And you can see the audition online, but to sum it up, I kind of like snuck up behind my victim, um, knocked him out, sawed off his head, picked it up, tasted the blood, didn't like it. So I took out a salt shaker and seasoned it, then tasted it again, kind of bathed in it for a second, then skipped out my merry way. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's what got me the role. They, they asked me right there, like, can you come in for a makeup test? And that hardly ever happens in film auditions. You usually have to come in several times for mm -hmm. different you know, callbacks just to see how you um, match up and everything. But I, I, I felt like they pretty much knew they wanted me from the get-go. So that was pretty cool. What did you think of the scripts when you first read it? Oh, I loved it. I was like, this is, this is very gutsy. Uh, no pun intended, but um, actually pun intended, I guess you could say too. But um, was, because I, 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 I had some questions though, because, you know, I saw how descriptive these kill scenes were. And I'm so used to most horror films where, you know, they, they do it all off screen. Basically, you might see the first strike and then cuts away. And that's not how they were described in these, these scenes. And I asked Damon, is this, are we actually going to film this? And he's like, yeah, we're actually going to film like the hacksaw scene. He's like, yeah, we're going to film this. I'm like, oh, wow. Yes, this is, this is going to change the game. I think this is going to get people talking because you don't see those kind of kills in horror movies anymore. And I, I was very excited. Right. I, I have to say watching the film, I kind of feel that art cheated because it's supposed to be splatter stalk mm -hmm. and slash according to wikipedia but he gets out a gun that's not yeah. fair oh well, why should he play fair that's how i look at it he's he's a, he's the bad guy he doesn't have to play fair <laughs> and plus i love that that we're, we're breaking a lot of conventions there too because that shows you right then and there that you at, from that point on you know you know, you don't know what to expect from this guy he, he can do whatever he wants to and he, he might just kill off who you think is the final girl right there in the middle of the movie, pull a, you know, a psycho on you. And I love that. And plus, you know, he doesn't really use the gun just as, you know, just shoot, bang, you're dead. He uses it to just maim his victim mm. and he obliterates it just like toy disfigures her face with this gun. So I, that's what I liked about it. What was the toughest part of filming? Um, for the first film, I would say it was definitely uh, the hacksaw scene. Uh, 
the night that we did all the stuff with Catherine, because that was a very dangerous stunt to do. We were really um, hanging her upside down naked in, yeah, in that, that room was maybe 20 degrees that night because there was no heat in there. And, you know, she's covered in all that blood and that's, that's miserable enough, but, you know, she's hanging upside down. That's very dangerous to do to a person. So we, we'd only let her hang upside down for upwards of maybe 40 seconds and then we'd have to swing her back up. So we, we basically had like 30 seconds to film each time. And so it was very stressful because we, we wanted to make sure she was comfortable and safe, uh, but also to get what we needed to get. And that was, it was a very stressful night just trying to get through all of that. Right, right, right. Because you also were around more or less naked as well, the same night? Um, no, that was a totally different night. That was, uh, that was actually, we filmed the stuff with Catherine a totally different time, um, month, like about two months later, um, because we changed locations. But uh, the, the night that I'm walking around naked, I, I, I felt sorry for everybody in, in the, the cast and crew. I was like, I'm sorry, you have to see me in this state. <laughs> It's like no one, no one signed on for this. No, because that wasn't even written in the script to be that way. That was like a few days before we sh- filmed it. Damien and I are in the car, you know, on the way to set. He's like, Dave, I got this um, crazy idea. I don't know how you're going to like it, but I think it'll be really cool. And I'm like, okay, so what is it? And he's like, why don't, because in, in the script, it, the art was just going to wear those body parts over his costume. He's like, why don't we, instead of doing that, why don't we just have him naked and wearing the body parts? I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, first of all, who wants to see me naked? Secondly, that's freaky because that that whole idea that, you know, someone's going to put someone else's body parts on them like that is a, is pretty freaky. Yeah, it's like, especially to encounter something like that. That's just, oh, boy. And <clears throat> Also, it breaks that convention of a horror villain. You know, you never see the horror villain out of their uniform. Mm. And we're like, oh, let's break another convention here. And that's what we did. What, so what was it like working with Damien? Oh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. We, we instantly hit it off when I went in for my makeup test because yeah, I'm sitting in the makeup chair with him. And we're both big, huge you know, entertainment geeks. We love movies and you know, TV shows and all that good stuff. So that's how we bonded. And yeah, that is that just translates its uh, its way onto set too because um, we're, we're very close. We're almost like brothers now, I would say, and uh, we we work really well together. It's just like, uh, you know, he he's really good with like coming up with really freaky moments and stuff like that. I'm more the comedy guy, and I think we work really well together that way because we, we both have our ideas. Uh, of course, it's always you know ultimately his final say and everything like that but he he's very open to other ideas and letting me play around with things and see where what we can come up with and so sometimes he will be filming and he he's telling me exactly what kind of facial expression he wants me to do in the moment stuff like that like like with the gun saying he's he wanted no facial expression at all as opposed to everything else from smiling giddy and stuff like he's wanted this total deadpan dead eyes all that other times he's like okay we've done what I want to do. Now you put your own thing on this, play around with it, see what else you can come up with. And that way we have options. So he, he sees what works in the moment. Sometimes it's, it's better to have a little bit of humor in the moment. Sometimes no humor. That's fascinating. It's not often you find a, a director who's willing to do that. And yeah. to be honest, who has got the time? Because yeah. mostly they want to get everything in the can in as few takes as possible. It is so true. 
So what sort of <clears throat> budget was the first film then? Oh, that's I it was much lower than I thought it was. I'm like when Damien told me the actual budget, I, I couldn't stop laughing for several minutes because I'm like, how did we do what we did on this budget? And I, I thought it was at least five hundred thousand dollars. That's what I thought. Because you know, I'm so used to like most Hollywood movies, even low budget movies are made for at least a million. Mm. And he's like, Oh no, not even close. I'm like, well, what is it? He's like, thirty five thousand dollars. We made Terrifier one on thirty five thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, wow! Yeah. It's, it's that's insane. And now part two we made for about you know I, I don't know the actual numbers. He hasn't told me, but I, I know at least for like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that's still insane when you consider all things what we've done in part two, especially because part two is so much bigger. And it's just, that just shows you the, the, the talent of the team we have involved that we can make a, a movie that looks like it's cost several million dollars on less than a million dollars, less than half a million dollars. Mm. And it's mm. just the dedication and talent of the team involved. So what now, when did you first become aware of when, how art was impacting audiences? Oh, I, I would say probably at our first convention, which was even before we released on Netflix. I think that's when we're kind of going, hey, we might actually have something here because there were a lot of vendors there that had their own pieces that they were selling of art. And then we saw some cosplayers going around as art and we had people with tattoos and we actually had uh, someone get a tattoo at that first convention. And I was like, huh, you don't see the same kind of reaction to other horror films of that time. You, you, I, I wasn't looking around and seeing merchandise from other recent films back in 2018. I'm like, I think we might have something here. It's, it's kind of resonating with people. And then when it released on Netflix, that's when it really picked up because, you know, so many more people had access to it and different celebrities started tweeting about it. And that's, you know, that just brought us to a bigger audience. And that's when we really saw it snowballing. Oh, cool. Yes. Cause I, re I think I remember when I first met you, as I say, it was at a convention. I thought, yeah, mm -hmm. I keep on seeing all these <laughs> people yeah. walking around. Or I think that is when you really know that people are interested in it. Isn't yeah. It? That, yeah. They walk around with it. So, um, what about Terrifier 2? When did you know that Terrifier 2 was happening? Uh, well, I, I think we always kind of wanted to do a Terrifier 2, but we were waiting just to see how well, how well the movie was received. But um, I, I think after basically around that first convention, that's when I'm like, yeah, we definitely have to do a part two. And especially once it released on de uh, Netflix, we're definitely we're like, yeah, yeah. And Damien started writing the script around that time. Yes, and I understand from what I've been reading again on, on Wikipedia that this was based on an idea that he'd had um, some time ago. Mm -hmm. what, but I presume you were held up by the pandemic, were you? Oh, we were. That that, that sucked because we started filming late 2019. We're only supposed to have like a you know, three-month uh, film schedule. And we're near the end. We had a, just a few more kill scenes to do and some other smaller scenes to do. And then... Um, the pandemic happened, locked us down. We had just finished doing the big clown cafe scene the week before the pandemic hit. <clears throat> so we're very grateful that happened. 
the afterwards because that that scene had so many moving pieces to it you know a lot of stunt actors a lot of we had to bring in all the indiegogo backers and stuff like that for it had a lot of um you know extras in it so many moving parts and oh thank god we got that done before the pandemic because that would have been a nightmare to film that scene it wouldn't have come out nearly as good as it did because it, it you know covid would have just restricted us so much on that but um yeah, we still had to do uh, the alley kill and the uh, the coroner's death and some other scenes. And in a weird way, the pandemic helped us because Damien had more time to make the prosthetics he wanted to make for these. So he went back to the drawing board. It's like, hey, I got time now. We don't know how many months we're going to be in lockdown. I might as well make use of this time instead of sitting here just feeling sorry for myself. So he revamped the kill scenes and added so much more to them. And it, like, for instance, the alley kill scene was only supposed to take two days to film with his new version of it. It ended up taking a week to film because there are just so many elements to it. And that's the big kill scene. Everybody talks about in the movie now. It's like, so in a way COVID helped us. Right. And so, and again, what was the toughest moment on terrifier too, then apart from having to wait for it to. Oh Yeah. I would say it was the the climax of the film in the Fright Factory uh, there in Philly, because that was just such a big chunk of the film. And we were there for like a few weeks filming and, you know, not to knock the, the, the location. I mean, it's like it's they're set up just to be a location during like the Halloween months. And after that, you know, just kind of sits there for a while. But um, it's didn't have a lot of heat in there and we're filming this in like January and February in, in, in Philly. And so it was cold. It was so cold and we're there for hours upon hours. So we're in back to back days. And so it, it was just a long, cold process and we were just exhausted. I, I, you know, it's, it's how it goes. It's, and it's all, you know, it's a lot of fighting in there too. So, you know, Poor Lauren. That's the one I really felt sorry for because she, that whole entire time she's covered in blood and all these other liquids and she's wearing next to nothing for days on end. And the costume she's wearing is not the most comfortable costume for her anyway. And it keeps falling apart and she toughed it out. It, it's like, I think some of those scenes were like, you see her just shaking in fright or in pain. She was using how she felt in that moment. She's like, yeah, she wasn't really having to act there. That like, that was real shakes. Right. So, um, would you, how big in terms of your career did art turn out to be? Did this bring you to, you talked about fans mm-hmm. and his art. Did it really help your career? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I was waiting tables when terrifier one came out and that was kind of a very surreal thing going going to work and people treating you like crap all day you know just because they don't have enough ranch on the side of their salad and then you go home and you have fan mail you're answering i'm like this is so weird this is so weird and and once terrifier once i started doing conventions i was like i don't have to wait tables anymore and so that changed everything and you know i started getting offers from other people you know to do films and it just starts snowballing. I, I think now with Terrifier 2, that's really, you know, the dam is starting to break career-wise for not just myself, but for Lauren and Damien as well, especially. It's just like, because now we're getting recognition from outside of the indie community. Now Hollywood has taken notice of us. 
because we've been breaking records left and right that has been unheard of in this, you know, this genre and this industry. Oh, that's brilliant. So <clears throat> what else have you been up to you, between doing Terrifier 1 and Terrifier 2? What other things have you been doing? For one, I've been working on another project with a lot of the Terrifier team called Stream with a, uh, Mike Levy, who plays Exterminator in Part 1 that I decapitated. And he's also the AD for Part 2. He's the director for Stream. And we have like tons of like horror alumni in this movie. Like D. Wallace, Jeffrey Combs, Daniel Harris, Tony Todd. Oh God, Daniel Roebuck, Terry Alexander, Tim Robbins. It just the 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 not Tim Tim Robbins. I can't remember. Tim Reed, Tim Reed, not Tim Robbins. But um, God, decongestant brain. But um, so many other names too. I can't even mention yet. So it's been that's been nuts. We're almost finished with that. I think I have maybe like one one or two more scenes to film with that. We we started filming that during COVID as well, and we had to take some time off to raise a little bit more money because we got a little bit ambitious with it. <laughs> but um, also I have another film coming out in December that I filmed earlier this year. It's a Christmas horror movie called the mean one where I play uh, a parody of a very popular Christmas character from a very popular Christmas story here in the United States. And it's pure camp, pure silliness. It's going to be fun. So we're releasing that on streaming platforms for free in, on December 15th. And then I start working on a new movie called The Dead Place sometime early next year. And we're doing an Indiegogo campaign for that right now as well. So if you can contribute to that, that's awesome. We really appreciate it. That and we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Um, Bill Obers Jr. is going to be in that as well. You know, Papa Corn. So you're going to have Papa Corn and Art the Clown in the same movie together, which is kind of exciting. So, yeah. Oh, cool, cool. What Now, you've done theater, TV as well and yes. film. do you have a favorite of those three? Oh boy forms? that's 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 a tough question because i also do voiceover too and they're all oh, different cool. different things like voiceover i enjoy because i don't have to worry how i look i don't have to worry about memorizing anything i just go in there i have a script in front of me i can just play around and be wacky and crazy and stuff i did a bunch of silly voices and play characters i can never play live because you know i played you know, I'm, I'm a skinny guy i, I usually can't play big huge muscle bound men, but I played some of those in some video games and stuff like that, which is crazy. <clears throat> Stage wise, I really like that because I'm able to take my time and really develop the character and find all these nuances with the character and with the scenes over the rehearsal period. And I, I love having a live audience. So I, especially with comedy, this is very important because it helps with timing. You know what's working, what's not working. You get that instant feedback. You know if the joke's working or not. And I love having that energy to pull off of with the audience as well. So I, I, I love that. Uh, Film-wise and TV-wise, that's it's kind of nice because if you make a mistake, you just do another take. But you're not getting that instant feedback. So you, know, you don't know if things are working the way you want them to work, if this is going to get the laugh the way you want it to get a laugh. So they're, they're trade-offs for everything. What do you, do you have any ambitions? Are there any roles that you would particularly like to play? Oh, definitely. Um, oh, boy. Uh, like One I, I've been wanting to put out in the universe really 
recently is because I know the Duffer brothers are doing a live action version of this uh, anime series that I love death note. And I would love to play Ryuk in that. It, I think that he's, uh, I love that character so much. I, uh, I love a chance to tackle him um, stage wise. I I'm still always putting this out in the universe. I want a stage adaptation of a nightmare before Christmas so I can play Jack Skellington. And plus, I just think that would just be an amazing thing to see on a stage. I think you could do some really cool things with puppetry and stuff like that. And, and, and I love that kind of stuff. I, I'm a big tech guy. I, I love puppetry and cool special effects on stage right there in front of an audience. I think that's so much fun to do. Um, otherwise, otherwise than that, I, I would say my biggest ambition is to play the Joker live in a live live action version i played him on a uh youtube series years ago a fan-made series but i really want to do it legit and you know a movie would be fun but i would really love to do it on a tv series live action and that way i can spend a lot more time with the character because I, i i feel like hollywood has never done the joker justice live action wise like jack nicholson and cesar romero the closest we ever got to a comic book accurate version and it just seems like they keep on getting further and further and further away from what was in the comic book. And I want to bring it back to basics and give a, a like, bring the, the Joker from the comic book to life. Well, that's interesting. Cause I'm immediately thinking of the killing joke. Yes. Yes. Alan, that's, is that, is that the sort of character you're talking about? Oh yes, very much. So that is like my favorite graphic novel. I I've memorized a few of the monologues from that just for fun, because I, I just love the way he's written. I love Joker's dialogue. And that's, that's one of the things I think Hollywood keeps on messing up about the character. They forget how much this character is a master wordsmith. He loves to play around with the English language and he loves to monologue. And he's just so charismatic. They're now trying to make him just so creepy. And I'm like, no, no, no. He doesn't try to be creepy. That's too obvious. That the, the, the creepiness is his comes from what he does, his actions, his charisma is like that's what I think adds to the real creepiness. The character he doesn't try to be creepy. He just is. Ah, interesting. Very, very interesting. Do you, uh, do you, were you big on comics growing up? Oh yes, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> That's thanks to my dad. <laughs> really? What What did your dad? I meant to ask what your parent, your folks did. Uh, my my mom before she was pregnant with me was a special education teacher because my sister's mentally physically handicapped. And when she got pregnant with me, she's like, I I want to focus on you know raising my son and being a mom for a while because she was getting fed up with the, the education system. My dad was a NASA engineer. He worked on the solid rocket motor for the space shuttle mainly. Uh, so yeah, I, I if he, I, I really don't know what he did because he would try to explain it to me, and it was engineer speak, and it was just like, whoosh. <laughs> yeah. What, um, what? So, were you a DC person or a Marvel person? I, I, I would say I'm more Marvel, but I'm a big Batman guy. Right. Yeah, but I think Marvel is like Marvel is so much better with characters. I care like Batman. I love because of just Batman his rogues gallery. But Marvel is so good at capturing what really makes people tick. They understand the mindset of the everyday person. You you identify with a lot of the heroes in those stories, like Peter Parker. I identified a lot with Bruce Banner as a kid because I had a chemical imbalance problem. 
So I had a hard time controlling my anger and I would like rage out and like I would black out in a rage sometimes as a kid when someone provoked me. And so I, I identified with Bruce Banner that way. I was like, oh, I understand. I understand why he has these two different sides to him. And I, I, I love that. And Peter Parker, he's like, he's your everyday, you know, geek. Everybody loves the guy. You know, it's like you, you identified with him. He wasn't some rich guy or some alien from another you know, planet. You know, this is a guy trying to get by on his own. It, even though, yeah, he's a superhero, he's still trying to make ends meet. And that's what I thought was really intriguing about him. Then, of course, you have the X-Men that, you know, goes into like civil rights, you know, that's a great take on the civil rights movement, especially at the time they came out. And it's like Marvel always seemed to have its like finger on the pulse of culture at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I I tend to like the Chris Claremont X-Men. And yeah, 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 uh, very much so. Going back to um, Terrify, which you alluded that you're doing the the film is doing incredibly well. So mm-hmm. I understand that you're you're on billboards. We have uh, the cloud on billboards. I, I I know I don't know about like billboard billboards, but I, I know we're on like posters at new movie theaters and stuff like that, which is insane to me. Um, I, I love that. I know some people put us on like murals outside of buildings. They've they've drawn some things, which I think is really cool. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. Oh, that's that's very cool. Now I know it's been a long road between Terrifier One, which is what twenty sixteen. Yeah, um, we we had a rough cut come out in twenty sixteen, but we officially re- released the movie in twenty eighteen because ah, we right. we added some stuff. We added like the corner kill, the corner scene at the end of the movie, and the the decapitation of the exterminator. Right, 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 right. How much? Now I know you were very good about promoting the uh, film, the first film at mm-hmm. conventions. How much do you think that helped lead to Terrifier Two? I, I think it probably helped a lot because it, it helped build awareness, and I think also with Damon and I, we were very interactive with our fans, and I think that's what really helped everything because it's the fans that really made terrifier too possible i mean they they primarily funded the whole entire film and then even with the release of it it's been word of mouth it's you know it's you know i you hear what's going on right now with all these you know people all these different legit you know news sources talking about terrifier too because people are passing out and puking and stuff like that and a lot of people think that's just our, our publicity team we don't have that type of budget that has all come from the fans from just them going out, seeing the movie and tweeting their experiences. And, you know, they, they've seen at so, such and such and so-and-so have this experience of the movie and they tweet about it. And it has just snowballed from there. And then like, because the fans were tweeting stuff, media started to pick up on it's like, what, what's going on with this. And that's why we went from being in theaters for just three days. Cause that's where we're supposed to be a special event. Now we're going into our fourth weekend. And we've expanded to over 1,500 theaters now, which is insane. We were only supposed to be in 500 theaters. Wow. Yeah. I mean, 500 is a big number. Oh, yeah. But when, when you compare to like all the other movies that are out there that are, you know, 3,000 plus theaters, 4,000 theaters, we're up there in like the 
in the box office, the top 10 in the box office this whole entire time. And we've increased every single week, even though we've been in sometimes less theaters. And it's, 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 it's astounding because, you know, yeah, they have bigger, you know, a lot of them have bigger numbers compared, you know, money wise. Mm. But when you factor in the whole, you know, per screen ratio, it's like, wow, we're, we're kicking butt and we're increasing every week while everybody else has been decreasing. This is, and it's because of the fans. It's the fans just keep on talking about the movie and they keep going back to see it again, which has been astounding. I, I've seen so many messages of people. Oh, yeah, I'm going back for my second. I'm going back for my third time. I'm like, that's insane. <laughs> it just shows the power of fan base. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's really wonderful when you, you know, yeah. it means, you know, terribly supportive. The Hellraiser it's, franchise it's, over the years. Yeah. It's so true. It's, and I think it's beautiful because it's it's not this has not been produced by the Hollywood machine to be this way, you know that that you know you see so many of these other movies where they just pump stuff out and you know try to shove it down your throat the whole entire time. This has just been purely organic and created by the fans themselves. So that's that you there's a greater love for this I think than a lot of the other things that are out there that might be succeeding more than we are. It's it's crazy. That's brilliant. That's wonderful here. That's yeah. really, really good. It's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Absolutely <laughs> mind blowing. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to break, I'm going to take us completely away from career, and so on. Okay. I'm going to move on to a section now called the luggage in the crypt. Okay. Um, so, as I mentioned to you earlier on, basically the idea is I'm going to give you a huge great pyramid. You can take <laughs> into it whatever you want. What film might you take with you into the afterlife? Ooh, um, I would probably take the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit with me because that's my favorite movie of all time. I can watch that movie over and over and over again, and I'm always finding something new that I enjoy with it, something I didn't notice before. I, I've seen that movie well over 20, somewhat 30 times, and I still have fun watching it every single time I watch it. I Yes, my only connection to Roger Rabbit Roger Rabbit was one of the girls I was at drama school with. Mm -hmm. Um, She ended up by going with one of the animators on Roger Rabbit. Oh, that's so cool. uh, So I got to see one of the, I got to go to a cast and crew screening. Wow. uh, Yeah, it was the cast and crew screening in London because, of course, it was all done over here. Yeah, um, yeah. It's amazing. I'd sing it up on the big screen, and it's just like, what? What on earth is going on? Oh, it's so it's 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 a movie that it's never that type of movie is never going to be made again. Yeah, it's it's this it's its own special thing, and I hope no one ever tries to remake it or make a sequel because it just will not be the same. It will not yeah. capture that same magic that that movie had. No, There's just no. something special about that film. Yeah, I think it, I even had a T-shirt at one time that said, "I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way." Yes, Jessica. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, that's superb. What about a book? Ooh, book-wise. Um, now, is it just one book, or could it be a series? Well, it can be a series. I'll give you a series. I, I'll go with a series then, because there's God. I know this would take forever because there are at least. 30 somewhat books in the series I've been reading for a good decade or so. It's uh, on the R.A. Salvatore Drifts the Dark Elf series. 
Oh, I've not heard of this one. Yes, at all. it's a great fantasy series. It's just oh, so good. I could go on and on forever about just how well written this series is, the characters and everything like that. It's, just, I mean, if I've been reading thirty plus books in the series, it tells you how good it is. Wow! And just give me the title again. It's um, Ari Salvatore. He's the author, and it's Dritzt, D R I Z Z T, the Dark Elf. This is it's a whole series, yeah. Oh, cool, cool. All right, I shall look forward to Oh, yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm a yeah. big Terry Pratchett fan, so I like fantasy. Oh, I love Terry I love Terry Pratchett as well. Uh, yeah. Good Omens. Oh, my God, I love that book. <laughs> love that book, especially. Like, yeah. It, it's like it's him and Neil Gaiman teaming up. I Because Neil Gaiman's one of my favorite authors as well. I just oh, just love that kind of that, – that, I love fantasy, especially when you can blend fantasy with the real world. Yeah, I just oh, love, it. Yeah. love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about an album? What sort of music do you listen to? Ooh, I, I'm, I'm, I have a weird taste in music because it comes from my parents because I, I grew up with their generation of music. So I was listening to a lot of movie, um, music from the 50s and 60s and 70s, and of course I love 80s music and maybe mid 90s. But um, I, I especially love Queen, and I'm also a big, huge uh, musical theater nerd. Favorite musical. Uh, favorite musical is probably Les Miserables. That's that or Jesus Christ Superstar. I just love the music in both of those. Well, that, that's. Have you seen the film of Jesus Christ Superstar? I have. I've 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 done the production too. I played Annis one time, and I was the understudy for Jesus and Judas in it. <laughs> that's like that's a great combination. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What about a favorite food or drink? Ooh. Um, Favorite food? I think, God, it sounds so generic, but pizza. Because pizza could be so many things. And I, I just love, it's everything I love. We got meat, cheese, and bread. There you go. It's, it's just great. <laughs> and, it, and it works for any type of meal. You can have it as a leftover. Pizza's wonderful. <laughs> and should pineapple be put on pizza? I don't like it on pizza, but, you know, if someone else wants to do it, it's their, their prerogative. I, I just don't care for it. But, you know, whatever works for you, you do you. Because I've worked at a few pizza places and we would make some wacky pizzas. I We had this one place I worked at called Nick's Pizza, which no longer exists. But um, we had a pizza called the Hangover Pizza. And it was a pepperoni pizza. And it had a really good crispy pepperonis on there. So that, that was what I liked about it. But it had, we also put um, shoestring fries that were really crispy and hot sauce on it. And I, I like to do this one, but also the other half of it was a baking chicken ranch pizza. And then I put the two together and make a sandwich out of it. And it was wonderful. <laughs> Not good for your cholesterol, though. No. But so good. Oh, so good. <laughs> I've never, I've seen Calzone, obviously. With yeah. Food, but I like the, I, I've yeah. never thought of putting two pizzas. I would just, I would take, because it, it was done Sicilian style, so the like little the rectangular pieces, and I would just go <laughs> put them together and eat it like that. And I was like, oh, I, I call it the stoner special because we had a lot of college students that came in. So that's what I always recommend. I was like, do half of this, half of this. You'll love it. You'll thank me later. <laughs> what about a piece of visual art, a painting or a statue? Ooh, um, hmm. <clears throat> Let's see, a uh, piece of visual art. I'm, I, I, I'm really not the biggest art connoisseur, strangely enough, because my aunt is actually an artist. But um, I, I probably have to go something like you know, 
I, 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 I would consider, because I've seen sometimes people have done this where it's been comic book art. But like they've, and I, I've, I've seen some really impressive comic book art pieces. I have a, someone that painted me a, a portrait of the Joker. And that's probably what I would take with me. It's that, that portrait of the Joker. I, I think it's a really cool one. Right. I, I, I'm a big fan of comic book, book art. You can't see it because of my screen behind me. Mm-hmm. But I have, uh, I used to write comics. Um, uh, oh, fantastic. In the nineties. And one of my favorite, somebody actually did a, the art with lino cut. Um, and it took him ages and it buggered his wrist. I spoke to him afterwards because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and there's a guy called John Bolton. He literally used to paint beautiful oil paintings to do yeah. comic book art um so yeah no i'm a huge yeah a great believer in doing that i i think comic book artists are really you know they don't get the respect they deserve because mm. man there there are some impressive pieces they put out there oh yeah yeah because people think of it i think there's funnily enough in europe particularly in france italy spain they're much more respectful of comic book mm-hmm. artists, bon designé in, yeah. uh, in in French. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there, there's a much deeper understanding of the art form, I think, over yeah. there. What about a luxury? Something just, you know, a pair of slippers or something just, you can't, mm-hmm. I'm just, this is going to make me feel so good. Something I would love because I don't have it, and that's what I want one day, is just one of those good old Brookstone massage chairs. That's, oh, my God. I've, I've been in a few of these. Like uh, when I was in Atlantic City recently, they had one of those in the gym. And I, I was just like, I am he- in heaven. I don't want to leave this room right now. And I was like, I want one of those for myself. That's what I would I would have. Right, right, right. David, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. My thanks again to David. It really is great to see the success of an independent horror film. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks on November the 24th with another guest from the worlds of horror, thriller, or suspense. Until then, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. 